Would you turn in your pew Bibles to page 827? You will find there on page 827, Matthew chapter 22, which is where we are going to be today. Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. If you're new with us, what we do here is every week we just go a little bit further. Uh, and so we're a little bit further in, in the gospel according to Matthew today, and that gets us to Matthew chapter 22. We will read uh, verses 1 through 14. There's a parable here from our Lord and Savior. Matthew 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, as we look to your word, and you have given us very clearly a description of what your kingdom is like. Pray that we wouldn't take this lightly. Pray that we would not be those who pay no attention to you when you're speaking to us. Lord, I also ask that we would be able to understand what you're telling us. So by your spirit's power, enlighten your word so that we can hear with understanding and be changed. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, weddings, you know this, weddings are an exclusive thing. That's especially the case with royal weddings, isn't it? Royal weddings have been on our mind the past couple weeks, thanks to Oprah. And these... These lavish ceremonies, these royal weddings where all the stops are pulled and there's parades that are on display for, for weeks leading up to the event. These are events that people look forward to going to. For months they look forward to it. And if you're invited to one of these weddings, you go. After all, only a few people are invited to be invited to, to a royal wedding is, is an enormous privilege, isn't it? Well, this parable shows us that the kingdom of heaven is like that. Many are called, few are chosen, much like a wedding. The guest list can be big at a wedding, but it is limited. It's not universal. Some 
as we'll see, some will be given entrance into the eternal kingdom of heaven. And for those who are welcomed in, it's a celebration akin to the greatest feast you can possibly imagine, or that you can't imagine even. But those who are not received into the kingdom, they receive justice. God righteously condemns them. And there's really two reasons why that we see in our text. There's two reasons why people don't get in. The first, and this is really the point of the parable, the two reasons. The first reason why some do not enter into the eternal kingdom is that they have rejected the grace of God. The second reason is that they have presumed the grace of God. The context here is no different than it was last week. So Jesus uh, has entered into Jerusalem as king. We saw this recently with with the, uh, he comes in as as king. He's on a donkey and there's people praising him. But he receives scorn from others. And then he left. Do you remember that? And now he's returned. And his return into Jerusalem, his return to the temple is a return of judgment. He's pronouncing judgment. He's met by these religious leaders and he engages them in this long back and forth. Jesus gets the first word. We see that here at the beginning in chapters 21 and 22. And then in uh, in the middle of chapter 22, we'll see the leaders return with their word, their ways that they try to trick Jesus. And then he's going to come back with these seven woes in chapter 23. But this is one long engagement. From chapter 21 all the way through chapter 23. This is one long, I hate to call it a conversation because that kind of minimizes it, but that's kind of what it is. And with every word that Jesus says, these religious leaders get angrier and angrier at him. And they're looking for more ways on how they can kill him. And at the same time, what we see very clearly is that they are proving that Jesus' judgment is accurate. So in our parable this morning, this is the third of three parables that Jesus is giving us, and Jesus is still speaking directly to these same men, these same religious leaders. It's that same confrontation. Only this time, Jesus uses a different picture to show their guilt. Let's examine the parable then. And, and if you're new with us, what we do is we just walk verse by verse through the text. And so we're going to start here in verse 2. Verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is like a human king or a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And we see very quickly, as, we, as we've read the parable, that this parable really is about this big question of who gets to go to the feast. It's a feast, But the idea here in the parable isn't the feast, it's who is there, who's being invited, who's welcomed in. With any wedding, there are certain people who are supposed to be there, right? They are the invitees that the bride and groom have carefully selected. When Susan and I were inviting people to our wedding years ago, it was, I don't know, a couple weeks that we spent, wasn't it? studying that you have a limited you have a small like limited number of people who can come and then all these people who might possibly be able to come and you have to narrow it down it takes time and brides and grooms have to go through this process and if you've been married and it wasn't during covid you you have gone through this selection process before and you know well the parents are supposed to be there the people your parents weren't want to be there are supposed to be there. Your siblings are supposed to be there. Grandparents are supposed to be there. Maybe there's some aunts and uncles that are invited, some who aren't invited. And there's cousins and there's best friends and coworkers and on and on. There's a list and you know who they are. You know who's supposed to be there. And it's the same with this royal wedding that Jesus is describing for us. There's a guest list of people who are expected to be invited to the wedding. And so they're invited to the wedding. Now, the way that wedding invitations worked in the first century in Jerusalem is different than the way that wedding invitations work today. You guys probably know this. Let me just kind of set the stage for you. They didn't have a postal service 
and most of the people didn't have email or phones. So, so the way that a wedding invitation was given was through couriers, messengers. You would send people out, and they would go out and say, hey, there's a wedding coming up in the spring, sometime around March. You're invited. You should come. And that, that first invitation was kind of like a save the date. You know, we still do that. You send out that save the date. Block this time out on your calendar, this general time, because there's going to be a wedding then. So that was that first announcement that they would have got, and that announcement is assumed here in the text. It's assumed that the, the people who were the ones who were invited to the wedding feast already knew that they were invited to the wedding feast. And since the wedding feast lasted an entire week, when that second invitation came to you, and they, said, they called to you and said, it's time to go, you knew you had some time to get there, but you were going to go because you had set it out, set out that time to go. And that's what we see happening here at the beginning of the parable. It's why in verse 3, the king sends his servants to call those who were invited. They already knew they were invited. And it's the call that the time has come to celebrate the wedding feast. They are expected to attend. They had at least given some notion that they would be there originally because they knew they were invited. They were family. They were the people who were on the wedding list. And as we read this parable, we're supposed to see this first group, this invited group, those who knew they were invited, who are called to come, we're supposed to see them as the Jews. They were the ones who were anticipating this wedding feast. They were anticipating the arrival of the son to the king's palace. They were anticipating the arrival of Messiah. They were expecting this great feast when he arrived. And the prophets or the messengers had, had been sent to them long ago. That's what the Old Testament is. It's the prophets announcing to God's people that the Messiah is coming. So they had been sent long ago to tell the people that that day was coming. And when the day arrives and they get, to call to, they get that call to come to the table, Matthew says in verse 3, but they would not come. They would not come. Which, friends, this is, this is really insulting, okay? This is not the wedding invitation of the third cousin twice removed of a next-door neighbor that you had 20 years ago in that one apartment complex, right? This isn't a random invitation. And even if you did, even if you did get that random invitation, what do you do? You at least send an RSVP, I can't make it, and, and a card that says congratulations, or you get them something off the registry, even something small like a mug, something. But you, you would at least acknowledge, hey, this is an important day for you. I wish I could be there, <laughs> but I don't know you. But these people aren't that, are they? This is a much bigger deal than that. This is the wedding feast of the king's son. And you are a part of a very small, very limited guest list. So it doesn't matter if you want to go to the wedding feast hosted by the king. At the very least, you go because he's the king and you're his subject. And what's expected is that you would understand the honor of being there and you'd want to be there. So to not go was disobedience to the king. You see that? And to not want to go is an act of contempt towards the king. But the king does not take offense to this first snub, though he has a right to. He's not easily offended. Notice what the king does in verse 4. He sends more servants. He sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So having been rejected and having his absolute authority over his subjects, undermined by their contempt towards him, the king responds 
in mercy. Don't miss that. He could have immediately smote those who refused to come the first time. But that's not the kind of king that this kind king is. He's a patient king. He's a merciful king. So when he sends the second invitation, this time he helps the people out a little bit. He tells them what is exactly being offered to them at the feast. I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat and calves, which is to say, I am inviting you to share in my joy. There is feasting for you here at my expense. So come and share with me. This is a gracious, gracious invitation that comes from the heart of the king, the love of the king, the mercy of the king. This is what it means to be invited into the presence of God. And I think we can see from this that belonging to the kingdom and celebrating with the king in his kingdom, it's not a list of don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, and so on and so on. It's a feast. It's a lavish feast. At the very essence of belonging to the kingdom is sharing in the joy of the king. And absolutely, yes, that that involves submitting to his rule over us. But that submission, it's not a reluctant submission. Look at what it means. It's, It's a joyful, willing submission because participating with God, sharing in his joy, it is the single most great privilege. It's the greatest privilege in all the universe. Ephesians 2 Chapter or verse 7 speaks of this privilege. Let me show you how Paul describes this feast in a different way. It begins in verse 6. God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. The immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let me just say that again, okay? God has seated us with Christ Jesus. We've been welcomed at the table so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what this second invitation is about. These servants are going out to those who were invited and who knew they were invited. They knew they were supposed to be there. They knew that they should be going. And the servants are showing the grace of the king to them and drawing to the feast. And it's like they're saying, the king has prepared his feast for you at his expense and there are immeasurable riches there. He's welcoming you into the feast of his son. Come and share in his joy. He's honoring you. The king is honoring you by including you in this celebration because he's generous and he's loving and he's gracious. So come. But what happens? All of that persuasion, the, the picture of the feast that's set before them the mercy of the king, the grace of the king, it all falls on deaf ears, doesn't it? Look at the response of the invited ones. In verses five and six, it says, they paid no attention to him. And they went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. Now, I want you to see that both of these groups here, there are those those who responded apathetically and there are those who responded violently, but they're both in the same group. They both have rejected the grace of the king. Just to examine that first group, to say this, to say my farm or my business is more important to me than going to the king's feast 
is to say, well, the way that I provide for myself, I know the king can provide for me a great feast, but the way that I provide for myself is more important to me than the way that the king provides for me. I can do better. And this is an illusion, isn't it? That, that perceived self-sufficiency is a total illusion. In reality, these, these people who are choosing their, their farms, their businesses, their careers first, they are, uh, they're operating within the bounds of the kingdom. So that farm that that man is going to work, that's on the king's property. And that business is ultimately under the king's control because he is absolute sovereign. He is the king. And I think we can, we can come to this conclusion. Even though we know this is meant to be a picture of Israel's rejection of God's grace, there is definitely application for us in this, isn't there? Anyone who rejects the grace of God, anyone who rejects the grace of God is liable to judgment. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're invited to come commune with the Lord, you go. Because there's nothing greater than being in his presence, nothing more important, not even our work. Okay? When, when we begin at any point in our lives to, to put our careers the way that we believe we're providing for ourselves and we're providing for our families, when we put that work above our obedience to God, we've clearly forgotten. We've forgotten why God has even given us that vocation to begin with. Our work is just a way that he provides for us. To make an idol out of the gift of work and put it above our allegiance to him, above our worship to him, is to reject his grace. That's what these men have done here. That's what we do. So let's just be really practical. All right, I'll spell it out for you. I know you're thinking it. What we're doing when we intentionally work, just let's say Sunday mornings, when we have that option of not working on Sunday mornings and we choose intentionally to work on Sunday mornings, when Sunday morning worship is this gathering is when we as a church body have agreed together, this is when we will come together before the throne of God to hear from him and worship him. When we choose work, our farm, our business, over that, it is a rejection of his gracious invitation. You see that? The first group rejects the gracious invitation to this, I mean, really what this is, this is a once-in-a-lifetime, eternally satisfying feast. And they've rejected it in favor of just some everyday mundane thing that they could do. No thanks, I'm good, I don't need that. I'd rather just keep doing my thing. That's the first group. The second group, they're blatantly wicked. We see this one. This one is a bright spot for us. In response to the gracious invitation from the king, the second group mistreats, they kill, they beat the king's servants. And if you remember from last week, this sounds a whole lot like what the tenants in the vineyard did, doesn't it? The king sent servants to gather the fruit from the vineyard and the tenants murdered the servants. And we see that repeated again. And what Jesus is doing, he's alluding to how Israel has historically treated the prophets, the king's servants. They were terrible to these guys. God's prophets were hated by Israel. They were ignored by Israel. They were beaten. Some of them were murdered. And these things actually happened. Jeremiah, as an example, was beaten and he was put into stocks by a, a priest of all people. Jezebel, the, the wicked wife of King Ahab, killed the Lord's prophets. And then she tried to go after Elijah and she would have killed him had he not escaped. Joash had Zechariah, the prophet, stoned in the temple. 
And anyone standing there listening to Jesus who is in the temple would certainly remember the murder of John the Baptist because of how recent it was. Another prophet calling on his people, calling on God's people to come to the feast, murdered. Israel had a long history of despising God's prophets and everyone knew about it. And so through this parable, Jesus is saying that the prophet's message from the very beginning was come and feast at the table of the king. And you heard that in our reading from Isaiah today, almost verbatim, that's what Isaiah was saying in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. There's your feast, a feast of well-aged wine, rich food full of marrow, aged wine, well-refined. You see the feast? You see the prophet inviting people to the feast? The prophet's message throughout the Old Testament was that Israel was immensely, immensely privileged to belong to the Lord. They were privileged to be a part of his kingdom and to share in his joy and in all that he brought to them. The message of the prophets, when you read it, in, in this light, it's a good message. It's an inviting message. It's a gracious message. And it's a slow to anger message, isn't it? It goes on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And yet, over and over again, God's people rejected his messengers. Even killed. Some of them were killed. And so now, as Jesus is telling, retelling the history of Israel, the long-anticipated feast that was told of has arrived. The Son, the Messiah, is here. And the very people who should be tripping over themselves to get in the door want nothing to do with any of it. Some of them are so embittered even by the invitation that they kill the messengers. Well, the king is fed up now. He will have none of this. He's furious at the rebellion of his own citizens. He's been merciful and merciful for centuries and centuries. And he's called to his people again and again. And now the wedding feast has arrived. He's graciously laid out before them all that will be provided. And they murder his servants. And that's not just insulting. What that is saying to the king is we wish you were dead too. And so what does the king do? Look at verse 7. He's angry, justifiably. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And this is a very, very clear prediction from Jesus that Jerusalem, the city of the people who reject the king... Jerusalem's destruction is imminent, and we'll see that all throughout the next several chapters. Remember what's happening here is in the bigger story of the gospel, as we're working our way towards the cross, Jesus is uncovering for us Jerusalem's guilt. The leaders of the city, those who were meant to shepherd God's people toward him, are unrepentant, they are disobedient, and they have repeatedly rejected the grace of God. And as a result, those who were invited to participate in the feast, but who killed the servants and had contempt for the Son, well, they will receive judgment. And that judgment will be their own destruction and the destruction of their city. And that happens in 70 AD. It's coming. We'll keep seeing this repeated refrain as we get all the way through Matthew chapter 25. Well, that's the end of the first parable, or the first half of the parable, rather. And it's really grim, isn't it? Everyone died. And that's it. But the son, there's still a wedding happening. And the son is still getting married, and there's a, still a wedding feast, and all the food has already been prepared. But none of those original invitees are coming. Now, this is a parable, okay? So remember, not everything here, we shouldn't try to overwork the parable. Not everything has a one-to-one -one correlation. We know from the book of Acts that thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews were saved. Lots of people were brought into Christ. Thousands of Jews received Christ as king when he came. 
They repented. They accepted the king's invitation. And we even saw that just last week with the parable of the two sons. Jesus says the tax collectors and the prostitutes that repented and received Christ, those people were Jews. They were Israelites. So, so even though the, it appears from the parable that all of the Jews rejected him, we know just from the previous parable that that's not the case. What we're supposed to be seeing here is that those who should have been most excited, most expectant, which is to say the teachers, the leaders of the people, the ones who were at the top of the invitation list, they have rejected the invitation. So we have a problem now. We have a, uh, an issue that has to be dealt with. There's a wedding and all this food and an empty reception hall. And the king has a solution to this. And the answer was right there in Isaiah 25, if you were reading carefully. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. This feast was never supposed to be just for Israel anyway. From the beginning, it was always the Lord's plan that it would be for all peoples, all nations. And so it is the outsiders, the nations, that we see addressed here in the second half of the parable. And this is the part where you and I, outsiders, should be paying very careful attention, okay? So in, in verses 8 and 9, when the king says to his servants, all right, go to the roadside and invite everybody that you can find. The good and the bad. Invite all peoples. That's what happens. It's a gracious invitation. He's inviting all people, people he doesn't even know. And when they get there, the king is going to make them qualified to be there. That's why he's allowing the good and the bad. All will be consecrated. All will be sanctified so that they can be there at the feast in the presence of the king. And from the way that the parable is written, it seems like everybody invited shows up doesn't it? This massive wave of people, so many people that the entire wedding hall is filled. The king is going to honor his son. You probably remember this from a couple weeks ago, don't you? Jesus taught us that all those kids singing in the temple, remember that? And the, and the Pharisees were saying, why are you letting him do that? And he responded by quoting the Psalms. And our lesson was that it was God's will that Jesus be praised. Nothing stands in the way of the praise of Jesus. Nothing, not even the disobedience of Israel, not your disobedience, not my disobedience. Nothing stands in the way of the honor of the Son. Glory to God is going to be made known to all. So if that first group didn't come, he would invite a second group. And if the second group hadn't come, as John the Baptist said, God would have raised up stones to come to the feast. And as Isaiah says elsewhere, the trees and the rocks would have cried out to praise the sun. It would be ints at the wedding feast. It's the king's will that the sun be honored. And so now the wedding hall is filled and nobody's wearing a mask. Praise God. <laughs> And it would seem like that would be a very happy ending. And it would be a happy ending if that were the ending. This isn't the ending because a filled wedding hall is not the point of the parable. It's a point, but it is not the point. Although it is good to have a filled wedding hall and it glorifies the sun, Jesus introduces a plot twist for us we see here there is someone here not here but someone at the wedding feast who doesn't belong and at first glance we read that and we think well there, nobody really belongs there right they weren't really originally invited they're all outsiders and that that's part of the point but someone has come in and presumed upon the gracious invitation of the king, and he's come to the wedding inappropriately dressed. Everyone else is wearing evening gowns and tuxedos, and this guy looks like he's shopping at Walmart at one in the morning. It's obvious he doesn't belong. Pajama bottoms, tank top. The king comes out to look at all the guests, and, and he sees that guy. Oh, 
who is that? <laughs> he sees him immediately in verse 11, and then, and then he questions him in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Friend, how did you get in here? <laughs> how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man is speechless, isn't he? And that's a clue, right? Silence, whenever you see silence, it's a biblical clue that the Lord has come in judgment. And that's what's happening here. The king has, has come out from the back room into where all the people are gathered and he's come in judgment and there's silence before him. All of us are speechless before God on the day of judgment. That's what this is. The king has been roused from his dwelling place and all are silent before him. Zechariah 2.13. Now before we get to what happens next, we have to remember how parables work, okay? Because this, this part was really confusing to me, and I'm sure it was probably confusing to you as you were reading it this week. The way that parables work is that Jesus is using allusions of things that were well-known pictures or illustrations in the Old Testament. Allusions. He was alluding to those things. The vineyard we saw last week, the fence and the tower, that was from Isaiah 5. The fig tree that Jesus cursed, that represented Jerusalem. We see that in the Old Testament. The parables from back in chapter 13, I don't remember, if, for those of you who are here in chapter 13, when we have all of those parables, all of those had Old Testament allusions. There was the fishing net and the fish being separated. That came from Ezekiel. There was the mustard seed that turns into this giant tree where all the birds come and gather in. That was from Daniel. All of these images that Jesus is bringing forward for these people, they all had a source. He's not just bringing them out of blue. That source, or these word pictures, is the Old Testament. He's using these word pictures that have roots in well-known scriptures. He's bringing them forward and applying them to the reality of the kingdom. So he's teaching. There was that feast in Isaiah 25 that we read about, that's connected very closely to the first part of this parable and the second part. But there's also another feast from the Old Testament. We find this one in the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 1. Now Zephaniah, for most of you, uh, is a new name. He was a prophet during the reign of King Josiah. And Josiah was a king of the southern kingdom. So Israel was split into two kingdoms. Northern kingdom Israel, southern kingdom Judah. Josiah was one of the kings of that southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is the kingdom that had Jerusalem as its capital. Okay, so there's a little bit of historical context for you. In Zephaniah chapter 1, speaking of the coming day of the Lord, the prophet Zephaniah talks about a feast. And it's a Kind of a gloomy feast. It begins in silence. There's that reference to silence. Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 7. Because what's happened is Judah, the southern kingdom, has been idolatrous. They have chased after other gods, and so their judgment day has come. And the Lord invites guests to this feast. And those guests are the nations, the outsiders. And the sacrifice that they're going to feast upon is the kingdom of Judah, particularly Jerusalem. Told you it was gloomy. And Zephaniah says that the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and he has consecrated his guests. That means he has made them qualified to be there. And on the day of the sacrifice in verse 8, we see he's going to punish the officials of Judah and the king's sons and all who had arrayed themselves in, look at this, foreign attire. And that, wow, I'm starting to see connections here. So most likely that foreign attire of God's people, so they're, either they're Judahites, they're, they're Israelites, they belong to God's kingdom and they're wearing clothes that make them appear as if they belong to another kingdom. What that means is they're not satisfied in the Lord. They don't want to 
look as if they belong to God's kingdom. They want to look like people of the world. They want to look like the Baal worshipers rather than the worshipers of the Lord. They want to be like the nations rather than like the people that God has called them to be. And now, those very nations are their judges who have been invited to the feast. There's tons of connections between that prophecy and this parable. Jesus' parable is echoing that, all right? He's, Jesus is echoing for us a lot of what's been happening there in Zephaniah. The nations, the outsiders, are now at the Lord's table and feasting with him. They're eating what the Lord, the king, has prepared. And meanwhile, Jerusalem has come under judgment. This time it's for rejecting Messiah, the Son. So there's a lot of similarities, but there's some significant differences, and we're to see these as well. What we're seeing now in the parable is that what had been expected of God's people, back in Zephaniah, what was expected of the people that God had brought to himself, that they would be satisfied in him, that they would be trusting in him, that they would live in obedience to him, those expectations are now being transferred to the new people of Israel the new guests at the table. And the king, the Lord, has come out to see whether those expectations are being met. He's come out as judge to judge the guests. And sure enough, just like in Zephaniah, there is someone who is guilty of wearing unsuitable clothing. In other words, from this person's appearances, his Clothing communicates to the host, the king, the Lord, that he isn't satisfied in the Lord, he isn't trusting in the Lord, and he is not living in obedience to the Lord. He's presumed upon the grace of the Lord by believing he can be in the kingdom, but not be of the kingdom. He believes he can share in the riches of the king and taste of the heavenly feast. Hebrews chapter 6 but not identify as a kingdom citizen. I want you to see what's happening here with this man, the feast. Jesus, by alluding to Zephaniah, he's showing us this man is still wearing his old foreigner's clothing. His allegiance is still to another king, his old king, the kings of the world. His clothing shows he has not been transformed. He hasn't been transformed like all the other guests at the table have. And because he's not been transformed, he's righteously judged by God. He's tossed out into the other outer darkness, the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, and a word, hell. There's judgment for him because he's presumed upon the grace of God. So friends, when we are invited, this is, this is what we're to see here, okay? Because this message is clearly for us. When we are invited to share in the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Spirit, when we're invited to the King's banquet, the only way that we get in is by the grace of God. And we see that in the cross of Christ. But listen, God's grace is a transforming grace. We are transformed. We become different than who we were. Christ's work on the cross was not an invitation to come to the table as you are. That is presuming upon the grace of God. Christ's work on the cross cleanses you and qualifies you to sit at a table making you wholly new. Totally new. That's what the cross does. Colossians 1, verse 21 and 22. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, you who were once off on the main street and didn't get that in first invitation, you were outsiders, you were doing evil deeds. We didn't belong to the king. 
And it was obvious that we didn't belong to the king because we were doing evil deeds. Our deeds revealed that we belong to another king. We belong to the king of the world, the kingdoms of the world. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So what is that accomplish? What does Christ's work on the cross, his death, what does it accomplish? He's done that in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Christ's death for you is not an invitation, it's a cleansing. We are washed and sanctified and brought near to God through the work of Christ. And as Paul goes on to say in Colossians, because of this reality, because we've been made clean, because we've been brought into the kingdom at the table, because we've been brought into the presence of God by the work of Christ, because that's true of us, we put off our old garments. We, we put off the works that identified us with the world, our old country, who we used to be. And Paul gives us some examples of those garments. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk lying, and so on. We take off those garments because they are foreign to Christ's kingdom. They don't belong in his kingdom. And we put on kingdom garments. And what are those? What are those garments appropriate for the wedding feast? Paul says, as God's chosen ones, there's that word chosen, many are called, few are chosen. As God's chosen ones, we put on This is clothing language. We put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, loving one another. That's what we're to look like having been transformed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Those are the clothes the king's looking for when he comes out to judge. In Revelation 19, we see this again. Revelation 19, at the the marriage supper of the Lamb, here's here's another feast, another feast for us where the Son is being celebrated. This is another wedding supper. Only our concern this time is not the guests who are invited, but the bride herself, the church. And how is she clothed? Let's look at it. Revelation 19.7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. What's she going to be wearing? It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is what? What is it? It is the righteous deeds of the saints. Passion, hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, loving one another, one another, the righteous deeds of the saints. Friends, the point that Jesus is getting at here is that our deeds show where we belong. Our obedience to God, our perseverance in the faith, our desire to belong to God and to honor Christ as king, all of that comes from Christ's work, his redemptive work for us, his making us new. And when we are made new, we put on those clothes, the clothes of the kingdom. And we do that by his power, by his spirit. That's what king is looking for. He was looking for fruit in the vineyard. He's looking for those clothes here at this feast. Now this does not mean that if you sin ever, you're out. Please don't think that. 
That is not what this means. If we say we have no sin, what does John tell us in 1 John? We make God out to be a liar. We do have sin. We still are in the flesh, in the world. The hope is that we would not be of the world and of the flesh. I will sin. You will sin. The question is, are you being transformed? Are you content to just be as angry and bitter as you were the day you first walked into the banquet hall? Because that's just who you are. Or are you taking off that old you and wearing the clothes that he's provided for you? The fine, bright linen that has been graciously given to you by God. Are you adorning yourself with the works that the Spirit does in you? Many were called to come to the feast. Some outright rejected the call again and again and again and again. And so they were condemned. Friends, that doesn't change. If you continue to reject the call of the gospel again and again, if you reject the grace of God in Christ, there will come a point when you will be condemned. And so for those of you who are in that first group, repent. Repent of your rejection of Christ, your unbelief. Turn to Christ, receive him, and share in the riches of his kingdom. Many were called to the feast, but some presumed upon the gracious nature of the call. Some believed they could share in the riches of the kingdom without being made new by the king. Friends, if this is you, if you're living as if you have not been redeemed, it's likely you have not been redeemed. If you want the benefits of the kingdom of heaven, but you prefer a life of worldliness, you won't have the benefits of the kingdom of heaven because you have not been made new. Receive his grace. Be made new by him and walk in the spirit. Jesus ends in verse 14 by saying, summing all of this up with his most difficult few words, he says, many are called, but few are chosen. What does it mean to be chosen? And that word in the Greek means chosen. The elect. Who are these people? We're going to see in the next few chapters, especially chapter 24, more about this. Jesus is going to uncover more of what he means here. But in the meantime, we can go with this. These chosen ones are those who have been brought into the feast at the command of the king and have been transformed by his grace. And so, hearing his invitation, friends, receive his grace, be transformed by his grace. Don't get caught up in what it means to be chosen. Hear his invitation because it's for you. It's an open call for you. Hear his invitation, receive it in faith, and be transformed by Christ. Amen? Amen.